Good evening, friends, and welcome to Sleepy Tom Tales, a podcast aimed at helping you to get a good night's sleep. Do you find your mind plagued with the stresses of modern life, especially when the lights are out and you're trying to get a restful night? Does your spinning mind keep you awake? Follow my voice down the path towards a good night's rest. Listen to me tell a story that will keep your mind from wandering to your daytime problems, the ones you can't solve right now, and will be easier to solve while rested. Listen to my voice and allow yourself to drift, following the twists and turns of the story, but slowly letting go and drifting into sleep. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to ask for a couple of minutes of your time. As I've mentioned before, I left my job recently to focus full-time on podcast editing and production. So if you or someone you know would like to start a podcast, or has one but are struggling to get everything done, I can do most of the editing and admin tasks for you, including doing all the admin tasks involved in setting up a whole new podcast. So I'm here to help with that. So if you are interested get in touch with my email in the show notes for a free consultation and I'll get you going in the right direction. And we can see how I can help take the pressure off you so that you can focus on the fun stuff or spend your time doing more interesting things than audio editing and admin. And if you'd like to support Sleepy Time Tales more directly to keep it going out to thousands of insomniacs just like you, please consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash sleepytimetales. This is a monthly support that not only helps me keep the lights on, but also gets you fun bonuses based on your contribution level. Bonuses start at $2 a month and cap out at $5 a month, so it's very affordable and makes a huge difference to me and helps me keep this show going. But of course, always, if monthly is a big ask, and I can understand that, you can make one-sort of tips through the tip jar on the website. I've also got some merchandise and stuff up on the Tee Public store, which you can also reach through the show notes or via the website at sleepytimetales.net. I've done a whole bunch of Halloween-themed items which are up there at the moment, so it's quite timeless and um, handy. And another way to help Sleepy Time Tales is simply to spread the word. You can help me in my mission to give more people a restful night's sleep, to help me to do my small part and improving their lives. And last but not least, of course, shout out to the music, which is Sweet Night and Friends by Kumiku. Their music is available on their website at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks for your time. Let's get back to the show. So what exactly is Sleepy Time Tales? What is it for? What is this strange thing, this strange idea, this podcast that you're supposed to fall asleep to? 21st century is a time of struggle and sleep is a health crisis. And this is a podcast intending to help those that it can to get a restful night. Do you find yourself lying awake at night? Mind spinning and emotions in turmoil with anxieties of 21st century life? Do you wake up in the middle of the night and find yourself not quite able to doze back off at 3am? I'm here to help. My name is Dave, and I'm your narrator, here to help you into a restful night. 
Sleepy Time Tales is intended to be used as a distraction to what keeps you awake at night. Or sometimes background noise or company. That's why I make these episodes quite long. So that I'm here for you without any pressure of the end coming. Now as far as I know there are a couple of different ways to engage with the show. The primary idea behind Sleepy Time Tales is that it gives you something to focus on. A story that lets you keep your mind on a specific point, to stop it from spinning out into stresses and anxieties. To give you just enough focus not to resist the embrace of a night's sleep. But maybe you need something a bit different, maybe you just need some kind of background. Some people like white noise, some people like the rain or the wind in the trees or the sound of the ocean. Or maybe what works for you is just some boring dude droning on in the background. But just lie back and listen, and keep a light mental grip on the thread of the story, and allow the need for sleep to come for you. Now obviously I'm hoping that you're asleep before I get to the end of the episode, but it's important you don't feel pressurized, because this will probably actually not work on your first night. I recommend giving it a solid three nights try to see if you can adjust to it. Get used to the strangeness of the idea and listening to my voice, maybe my accent which is a bit strange to some people. And also, especially early on, maybe one episode isn't long enough. Or maybe your problem isn't even going to sleep. Maybe you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night. What I recommend, because it's what works for me and works for others is to let the podcast run all night. Download a whole bunch of episodes, put them into a playlist, and when you go to bed, start them up and let them go. That way, you wake up at 3am, the podcast's still on, you can carry on listening and just go straight back to sleep again. You can even do the same thing if you wake up before your alarm, 60 minutes or 30 minutes before the alarm goes. And you may wonder what the point is. What good is an extra 30 minutes or 60 minutes of sleep? But I've actually had people email in and thank me for suggesting that you carry on trying. Because there is something about allowing complete relaxation right before the alarm that's satisfying on a whole new level. So relax into this. If you're new to the show and prone to late nights lying staring at the ceiling, this will seem strange to you. So give it a chance. Because I'm here to work with you. To create a safe space. A cocoon in which you can call up and allow nature to take its course. So if you're still with me, thank you for staying. If you're already asleep, we'll chat again soon. And of course you aren't hearing me, except maybe in a dream. As it's spooky season... We return this year to the Book of Halloween by Ruth Edna Kelly. Halloween Beliefs and Customs in Ireland Ireland has a history of Halloween, or Samhain as it used to be called. Most of it was written between the 7th and 12th centuries, but the events were thought to have happened while paganism still ruled in Ireland. The evil powers that came out at Samhain lived the rest of the time in the cave of Crochen in Connacht, 
the province which was given to the wicked Fomo after the battle of Moitura. This cave was called the Hill Gate of Ireland and was unlocked on November Eve to let out spirits and copper-coloured birds which killed the farm animals. They also stole babies, leaving in their place changelings, goblins who were old in wickedness while still in the cradle, possessing superhuman cunning and skill in music. One way of getting rid of these demon children was to ill-treat them, so that their people would come for them, bringing the right ones back. One might boil eggshells in the sight of the changeling, who would declare his demon nature by saying that in his centuries of life, had never seen such a thing before. Brides too were stolen. You shall go with me, newly married bride, and gaze upon a merrier multitude, white-armed Nuala and Angus of the birds, and fear-cry of the hurtling foam, and him, who is the ruler of the western host, Finvara, and the land of heart's desire. Where beauty has no ebb, decay no flood, but joy is wisdom, time an endless song. Yates, land of heart's desire. In the first century BC lived Alil and his queen Meeb. As they were celebrating their Samhain feast in the palace, three days before Samhain at all times and three nights after, by ancient custom, did the hosts of high aspiration continue to feast for the whole week. Ogyarin, Lagarmon. They offered a reward to the man who should tie a bundle of twigs about the feet of a criminal who had been hanged by the gate. It was dangerous to go near dead bodies on November Eve, but a bold young man named Nera dared it, and tied the twigs successfully. As he turned to go he saw, the whole of the palace as if on fire before him, and the heads of the people of it lying on the ground and then he thought he saw an army going into the hill of Kraken, and he followed after the army. The door was shut. Nero was married to a fairy woman who betrayed her kindred by sending Nero to warn King Alil of the intended attack upon his palace the next November Eve. Nero bore summer fruits with him to prove that he had been in the fairy she. The next November Eve, when the doors were opened, Alil entered and discovered the crown, emblem of power, took it away and plundered the treasury. Nero never returned again to the homes of men. Another story of about the same time was that of Angus, the son of a Tuatha god, to whom in a dream a beautiful maiden appeared. He wasted away with love for her and searched the country for a girl who should look like her. At last he saw in a meadow among a hundred and fifty maidens, each with a chain of silver about her neck, one who was like the beauty of his dream. She wore a golden chain about her throat and was the daughter of King Ethel Unwell. 
King Ethel's palace was stormed by Elil, and he was forced to give up his daughter. He gave as a reason for withholding his consent so long, that on Samhain, Princess Kerr changed from maiden to a swan and back again the next year. And when the time came, Angus went to the lock, and he saw that three times fifty white birds there with their silver chains about their necks. And Angus stood in a man's shape at the edge of the lock, and he called to the girl, Come and speak with me, O Kerr. Who is calling me, said Kerr. Angus calls you, he said, and if you do come, I swear by my word I will not hinder you from going into the lock again. She came, and he changed her swan likewise, and they flew away to King Dada's palace where everyone who heard their sweet singing was charmed into a sleep of three days and three nights. Princess Etain of the race of the Tuatha and wife of Madeira was born again as the daughter of Queen Meave, the wife of Elil. She remembers a little of the land from which she came, is never quite happy, even when she wins the love of King Ochel. When they have been married a year, there comes Madeira from the land of youth. By winning a game of chess from the king, he gets anything he may ask, and prays to see the queen. When he sees her, he sings a song of longing to her, and Ocha is troubled, because it is Samhain, and he knows the great power the hosts of the air have over those who wish for happiness. In vain, Ocha pleads with her to stay with him. She has already forgotten all but Madeira and the life so long ago in the land of the youth. She and Madeira fly away in the form of two swans, linked by a chain of gold. Cochlein, hopelessly sick of a strange illness brought on by Fand and Liban, fairy sisters, was visited the day before Sawan by a messenger, who promised to cure him if he would go to the other world. Cochlein could not make up his mind to go, but sent Lee his charioteer. Such glorious reports did Lee bring back from the other world, that Cochlein went thither and championed the people there against their enemies. He stayed a month with the fairy Fand. Emma, his wife at home, was beset with jealousy, and plotted against Fand, who had followed her hero home. Fand in fear returned to her deserted husband. Emer was given a druidic drink to drown her jealousy, and Cochlein another to forget his infatuation, and they lived happily afterward. Even after Christianity was made the vital religion in Ireland, it was believed that places not exorcised by prayers and the sign of the cross were still haunted by druids. As late as the 6th century, the druids kept their skill in fortune-telling. King Dathi got a druid to foretell what would happen to him from one Halloween to the next, and the prophecy came true. Their religion was now declared evil, and all evil, or at any rate suspicious beings, 
were assigned to them or to the devil as follows. The power of fairy music was so great that St. Patrick himself was put to sleep by a minstrel who appeared to him on the day before Samhain. The Twelfth of Dedanen, angered at the renegade people who no longer did them honor, sent another minstrel who, after laying the ancient religious seat Tara under a twenty-three years' charm, burned up the city with his fiery breath. These infamous spirits dwelt in grassy mounds called forts, which were the entrances to underground palaces full of treasure, where was always music and dancing. These treasure houses were open only on November Eve, when the throngs of spirits, fairies and goblins trooped out for revels about the country. The old druid idea of obsession, the besieging of a person by an evil spirit, was practiced by them at that time. If the fairies wished to seize a mortal, which power they had as the sun god could take men to himself, they caused him to give them certain tokens by which he delivered himself into their hands. There might be milk and fire, or one might receive a fairy thorn such as Una brings home, which shrivels up at the touch of St. Bridget's image. Or one might be lured by music as he stopped near the fort to watch the dancing, for the revels were held in secret, as those of the druids had been, and no one could look on them unaffected. A story is told of Paddy Moore, a great, stout, uncivil churl, and Paddy Begg, a cheerful little hunchback. The latter, seeing lights and hearing music, paused by a mound and was invited in. Urged to tell stories, he complied. He danced as spryly as he could for his deformity. He sang and made himself so agreeable that the fairies decided to take the hump off his back and send him home a straight manny fellow. The next Halloween, who should come by the same place but Paddy Moore? And he stopped likewise to spy at the merrymaking. He too was called in, but would not dance politely. Added no stories nor songs. The fairies clapped Paddy Begg's hump on his back and dismissed him under a double burden of discomfort. A lad called Gulish, listening outside a fort on Halloween, heard the spirit speaking of the fatal illness of his betrothed, the daughter of the King of France. They said that if Gulish but knew it, he might boil an herb that grew by his door and give it to the princess and make her well. Joyfully, Gulish hastened home, prepared the herb and cured the royal girl. Sometimes people did not have the luck to return, but were led away to a realm of perpetual youth and music. If one returned, he found that the space which seemed to him but one night had been many years, and with a touch of earthly sod the age he had postponed suddenly weighed him down. Arsene, released from fairyland after three hundred years' dalliance there, rode back to his own country on horseback, he saw men imprisoned under a block of marble and others trying to lift the stone. 
as he leaned over to aid them, the girth broke. With a touch of earth, straight away the white horse fled away on his way home, and Asin became aged, decrepit and blind. No place as much as Ireland has kept the belief in all sorts of supernatural spirits abroad among its people. From the time when on the hill of Ward in Yatara, in pre-Christian days, the sacrifices were burned, and the Tuatha were thought to appear on Samhain, to as late as 1910, testimony to actual appearances of the little people is to be found. Among the usually invisible races which I have seen in Ireland are distinguished flower classes. They are the gnomes who are earth spirits and who seem to be a sorrowful race. I once saw some of them distinctly on the side of Ben Bulban. They had rather round heads and dark, thick-set bodies, and in stature were about two and one-half feet. The leprechauns are different, being full of mischief, though they too are small. I followed a leprechaun from the town of Wicklow out to the Karachi, Rock of the Fairies, a distance of half a mile or more where he disappeared. He had a very merry face and beckoned to me with his finger. A third class are the little people, who unlike the gnomes and leprechauns are quite good looking, and they are very small. The good people are tall, beautiful beings as tall as ourselves. They direct the magnetic currents of the earth. The gods are really the Tuatha de Danann, and they are much taller than our race. From whence, fairy faith in Celtic countries. The sight of apparitions on Halloween is believed to be fatal to the beholder. One version of the jack-o'-lantern story comes from Ireland. A stingy man named Jack was for his inhospitality barred from all hope of heaven and because of practical jokes on the devil was locked out of hell. Until Judgment Day, he is condemned to walk the earth with a lantern to light his way. The place of the old Lord of the Dead, the Tuatha God Summon, to whom a vigil was kept, and prayers said on November Eve for the good of departed souls, was taken in Christian times by St. Columba, Columkill, the founder of a monastery in Iona in the 5th century. In the 17th century, the Irish peasants went about begging money and goodies for a feast, and demanding in the name of Columkill that fatted calves and black sheep be prepared. In place of the druid fires, candles were collected and lighted on Halloween, and prayers for the souls of the givers said before them, the name of Salmon is kept in the title, Vigil of Salmon, by which the night of October 31st was until recently called in Ireland. There are no Halloween bonfires in Ireland now, but charms and tests are tried. Apples and nuts, the treasure of Pomona, figure largely in these. They are representative winter fruits, the commonest. They can be gathered late and kept all winter. 
A popular drink at the Halloween gathering in the 18th century was milk, in which crushed roasted apples had been mixed. It was called lamb's wool. At the Halloween supper, cold cannon, mashed potatoes, parsnips and chopped onions is indispensable. A ring is buried in it and the one who finds it in his portion will be married in a year, or if he is already married, will be lucky. A coin betokened to the finder wealth, the thimble that he would never marry. A ring and a nut to baked in a cake. The ring, of course, means early marriage. The nut signifies that its finder will marry a widow or widower. If the kernel is withered, no marriage at all is prophesied. In common in Central Ireland, a coin, a slur, and a bit of wood were baked in a cake. The one getting the slur would live longest. The one getting the wood was destined to die within the year. A mould of flour turned out on the table held similar tokens. Each person cut off a slice with a knife and drew out his prize with his teeth. After supper, the tests were tried. In the last century, nutshells were burned. The best-known nut test is made as follows. Three nuts are named for a girl and two sweethearts. If one burns steadily with the girl's nut, that lover is faithful to her. But if either hers or one of the other nuts starts away, there will be no happy friendship between them. Apples are snapped from the end of a stick hung parallel to the floor by a twisted cord, which whirls the stick rapidly when it is let go. Care has to be taken not to bite the candle burning on the other end. Sometimes this test is made easier by dropping the apples into a tub of water and diving for them, or piercing them with a fork dropped straight down. Green herbs called Livelong were plucked by the children and hung up on Midsummer Eve. If a plant was found to be still green on Halloween, the one who had hung it up would prosper for the year. But if it had turned yellow or had died, the child would also die. Hemp seed is sown across three furrows. The sower repeating, Hemp seed I saw thee, Hemp seed I saw thee, and her that is to be my true love, come after me and draw thee. On looking back over his shoulder, he will see the apparition of his future wife in the act of gathering hemp. Seven cabbage stalks were named for any seven of the company, then pulled up, and the guests asked to come out and see their souls. Red Mike was a queer one from his birth, and no wonder, for he saw the lights atwixt dusk and dark a Halloween Eve. When the cabbage test was tired at a party where Mike was present, six stalks were found to be white. But Mike's was all black and foul with worms and slugs, and with a real bad smell hinted. Angered at the ridicule he received, he cried, By the gift of the night I have, and on this day my curse can blast whatever I choose. At that the priest showed Mike a crucifix, 
and he ran away howling and disappeared through a bog into the ground. Twelve of the party may learn their future if one gets a clod of earth from the churchyard, sets up twelve candles in it, lights and names them. The fortune of each will be like that of the candlelight named for him, steady, wavering, or soon in darkness. A ball of blue yarn was thrown out of the window by a girl who held fast to the end. She wound it over on her hand from left to right, saying the creed backwards. When she had nearly finished, she expected the yarn would be held. She must ask, who holds? And the wind would sigh her sweetheart's name in at the window. In some charms, the devil was invoked directly. If one walked about a rick nine times with a rake, saying, I rake this rick in the devil's name, a vision would come and take away the rake. If one went out with nine grains of oats in his mouth, and walked about until he heard a girl's name called or mentioned, he would know the name of his future wife, for they would be the same. Lead is melted and poured through a key or a ring into cold water. The form each spoonful takes in cooling indicates the occupation of the future husband of the girl who poured it. After the future had been searched, a piper played a jig, to which all danced merrily with a loud noise to scare away the evil spirits. Just before midnight was the time to go out, alone and unperceived, to a south-running brook. Dip a shirt sleeve in it and bring it home and hang it by the fire to dry. One must go to bed, but watch till midnight for a sight of the destined mate, who had come to turn the shirt to dry the other side. Ashes were raked smooth on the hearth at bedtime on Halloween, and the next morning examined for footprints. If one was turned from the door, guests or a marriage was prophesied. If towards the door, a death. To have prophetic dreams, a girl should search for a briar grown into a hoop, creep through it thrice in the name of the devil, cut it in silence and go to bed with it under her pillow. A boy should cut ten ivy leaves, throw away one, and put the rest under his pillow before he slept. If a girl leave beside her a glass of water with a sliver of wood in it, and say before she falls asleep, Husband mine that is to be, come this night and rescue me. She will dream of falling off a bridge into the water and of being saved at the last minute by the spirit of her future husband. To receive a drink from his hand, she must eat a cake of flour, soot and salt before she goes to bed. The Celtic spirit of yearning for the unknown, retained nowhere else as much as in Ireland, is expressed very beautifully by the poet Yeats in the introduction to his Celtic twilight. The host is riding from Knocknaria and over the grave of Cluthnadabera, Silty crossing his burning hair and Neem calling away, away. And brood no more where the fire is bright, filling thy heart with a mortal dream 
for breasts the heaving eyes agleam. Away, come away to the dim twilight. Arms are heaving and lips apart, and if any gaze upon our rushing band, we come between him and the deed of his hand. We come between him and the hope of his heart. The host is rushing twixt night and day, and where is their hope or deed as fair? Sealed he tossing his burning hair, and Niam calling away, come away. In Scotland and the Hebrides As in Ireland, the Scotch Ball Festival of November was called Sawin. Western Scotland, lying nearest Tara, centre alike of pagan and Christian religion in Ireland, was colonised by both the people and the customs of Eastern Ireland. November Eve fires, which in Ireland either died out or were replaced by candles, were continued in Scotland. In Buchan, where there was the altar source of the Samhain fire, bonfires were lighted on hilltops in the 18th century. And in Moray, the idea of fires of thanksgiving for harvest was kept as late as 1866. All through the 18th century in the Highlands and in pasture, torches of heath, broom, flax or ferns were carried about the fields and villages by each family, with the intent to cause good crops in succeeding years. The course about the fields was sunwise, to have a good influence. Brought home at dark, the torches were thrown down in a heap and made a fire. The blaze was called Samnagen, of rest and pleasure. There was much competition to have the largest fire. Each person put in one stone to make a circle about it. The young people ran about with burning brands. Supper was eaten out of doors and games played. After the fire had burned out, ashes were raked over the stones. In the morning each sought his pebble, and if he found it misplaced, harmed, or footprint marked near it in the ashes, he believed he should die in a year. In Aberdeenshire, boys went about the villages, saying, Gez a peat to burn the witches. They were thought to be out stealing milk and harming cattle. Torches used to counteract them were carried from west to east, against the sun. This ceremony grew into a game, when a fire was built by one party, attacked by another and defended. As in the May, fires of purification, the lads lay down in the smoke close by, or ran about and jumped over the flames. As the fun grew wilder, they flung burning peats at each other, scattered the ashes with their feet, and hurried from one fire to another to have a part in scattering as many as possible before they dart out. In 1874, at Balmoral, a royal celebration of Halloween was recorded. Royalty, tenants and servants bore torches through the grounds and round the estates. In front of the castle was a heap of stuff saved for the occasion. The torches were thrown on. When the fire was burning its liveliest, a hobgoblin appeared drawing in a car the figure of a witch, surrounded by fairies carrying lances. 
The people formed a circle about the fire, and the witch was tossed in. Then there were dancers to the music of bagpipes. It was the time of year when servants changed masters or signed up anew under the old ones. They might enjoy a holiday before resuming work, so they sang, This is Halloween, the mourner's holiday, nine free nights till Martinmas, and soon they'll wear away. Children born on Halloween could see and converse with supernatural powers more easily than others. In Ireland, the evil relations caused Red Mark's downfall. For Scotland, Mary Avenel, and Scott's monastery, is the classic example. There is no hint of dark relations, but rather of a clear-sightedness which lays bare truths, even those concealed in men's breasts. Mary Avenel sees the spirit of her father after he has been dead for years. The White Lady of Avenel is her peculiar garden. The Scottish border where Mary lived is the seat of many superstitions and otherworldly beliefs. The fairies of Scotland are more terrible than those of Ireland, as the dells and streams and woods are of greater grandeur, and the character of the people more serious. It is unlucky to name the fairies, here as elsewhere, except by such placating titles as good neighbours, or men of peace, etc. Rowan, Elm and Holly are a protection against them. These spirits of the air have not human feelings or motives. They are conscienceless. In this respect, Peter Pan is an immortal fairy as well as an immortal child. While like a child he resents injustice and horrified silence, like a fairy he acts with no sense of responsibility. When he saves Wendy's brother from falling as they fly, you felt it was his cleverness that interested him and not the saving of human life. The world in which Peter lived was so near the Kensington Gardens that he could see them through the bridge as he sat on the shore of the Neverland. Yet for a long time he could not get to them. On Halloween all traditional spirits are abroad. The Scotch invented the idea of a summoner, a goblin who comes out just at Samhain. It is he who in Ireland steals children. The fairies pass at crossroads. And in the Highlands whoever took a three-legged stool to where three crossroads met and sat upon it at midnight would hear the names of those who were to die in a year. He might bring with him articles of dress, and as each name was pronounced, throw one garment to the fairies. They would be so pleased by this gift that they would repeal the sentence of death. Even people who seemed to be like their neighbours every day could for this night fly away and join the other beings in their revels. A witch's party was conducted in this way. The wretched women who had sold their souls to the devil left a stick in bed by which evil means was made to have their likeness and flew up the chimney on a broomstick with cat's attendant. 
Burns tells the story of a company of witches pulling ragwort by the roadside, getting each astride her ragwort with a summons, a pawsey and flying away. The meeting place was arranged by the devil, who sometimes rode there on a goat. At their supper no bread or salt was eaten. They drank out of horses' skulls and danced, sometimes back to back, sometimes from west to east, for the dances at the ancient Baal festivals were from east to west, and it was evil and ill omen to move the other way. For this dance the devil played a bagpipe made of a hen's skull and cat's tails. The light for the revelry came from a torch flaring between the horns of the devil's steed, the goat, and at the close the ashes were divided for the witches to use in incantations. People imagined that cats who had been up all night on Halloween were tired out the next morning. Tamo Shanta was watching such a dance, and Asha could not resist calling out at the antics of a neighbor whom he recognized, and was pursued by the witches. He urged his horse to top speed, but poor Meg had no tail thereafter to toss at them, for though she saved her rider, she was only her tail's length beyond the middle of the bridge when the foremost witch grasped it and seared it to a stub. Children make of themselves bogies on this evening, carrying the largest turnips they can save from the harvest, hollowed out and carved into the likeness of a fearsome face, with teeth and forehead blacked, and lighted by a candle fastened inside. If the spirit of a person simply appears without being summoned, and the person is still alive, it means that he is in danger. If he comes towards the one to whom he appears, the danger is over. If he seems to go away, he is dying. An apparition from the future especially is sought on Halloween, and is a famous time for divination and love affairs. A typical 18th century party in Western Scotland is described by Robert Burns. And I'm going to leave it there for tonight. I'm going to do something unusual this Halloween and carry on where we've left off next week for Halloween night proper. So we'll see you then. But as usual, if you'd like to pick up where we're leaving off, you can get the original on Project Gutenberg. I have the link in the show notes. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Sleepy Time Tales, the podcast designed around a bedtime story to help you to get a restful night. New episodes will be released every Sunday night to give you something fresh to help you rest in a new week, so make sure to subscribe in whatever service you use so that you get your new episodes whenever they come out. A reminder that the music for tonight is Sweet Nights and Friends by Kumiku. Check out more of their work on their website which you'll find linked in the show notes. Good night, and sweet dreams.